The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. U.S. stocks are spooked by inflation, which surges 5.5% at its fastest pace since 2008. But the Fed's Mary Daly tells CNBC the rise in consumer prices will be temporary. Once the prices stabilize and we don't have those high readings on inflation, they historically just come right back down. Importantly, long-run inflation expectations haven't made that move at all. They're really very steady. Big beats for the big banks. Uh, JP Morgan releases provisions after profit doubles on the quarter, while Goldman Sachs posts its second highest quarterly revenue ever. We feel very good about the way we're positioned. We have an at-scale leading franchise in global markets. The overall wallet's larger, and I think we'll perform well to that wallet. Elsewhere, you've got Volkswagen unveiling plans to become a market leader in the electric vehicle space, with the CEO Herbert Dees telling CNBC how the car maker can transition to 50% EV sales in less than 10 years. We see a picking up demand. Uh, legislation is very much uh, in favor now of EVs. And all our major regions are really focusing on EVs only. No, it's China, it's the US now becoming really an EV market. And Europe uh, is now with the aggressive plans towards 2030. Glass fashion house Hugo Boss sees a second quarter sales pop and says it expects revenues to rise by around a third this year as pandemic lockdowns ease and consumers start spending. Meanwhile, Apple reportedly asked suppliers to boost production of its next-generation iPhone by 20% and also enters a new segment, sending buy now, pay later stocks lower. yesterday were on this big CPI number and it didn't disappoint in terms of delivering headlines. Uh, the U.S. inflation surged past its fastest rate in 13 years in June, rising 5.4 percent. And another challenge to the Fed's view that the recent spike in price pressures is transitory. Consumer prices have overshot the Fed's 2 percent target since March as restrictions ease and the economy reopens. A spike in prices for car and truck rentals, as well as the cost of used cars, led to the surge. Rising prices for gasoline, food and airfares also contributed to the reading. Speaking to CNBC, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly reiterated her belief that inflationary pressures will be temporary. We expected a pop in inflation like this, and it will come. It will be for the next couple of months. And the reason is uh, there are a variety of reasons. We've all cited them. We had low uh, prices during the depth of the pandemic. Prices are recovering in airlines and other travel services. Once those have done, we don't expect those to keep growing. We also have bottlenecks. Demand came back faster than supply, and there are these temporary bottlenecks. So right now, it's really remained steady in the boat. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon also weighed in on the inflation debate, telling CNBC that the surge in consumer prices will depend on government spending. The facts around whether or not inflation will be transitory also depend 
on where we go, just not with monetary policy, but also fiscal policy from here. There's no question there's inflation, not just labor inflation, but also in supply chains. I'm hearing that from CEOs as I'm out traveling and talking to clients. You know, I think we'll have to watch it very, very carefully. But I know the Fed's extremely focused on the issue. Uh, yes, the Fed is extremely focused on it. But uh, as we've been hearing from Karen already, they, they believe it is transitory. Uh, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, is going to have to really defend the central bank ultra loose policy today. He's gone a couple of days of testimony uh, starting off on Capitol Hill today. He will be here, here be, appear before the Congress today and tomorrow to discuss the Fed's response to the pandemic. Uh, the Fed chair will likely be asked when the FOMC plans to reduce the amount of monthly asset purchases. Amid signs, the economy is recovering. Well, the San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly told CNBC when she expects the central bank to taper bond purchases. We don't need all the tools as we see the economy get its own footing. So absolutely time to start doing that, having those conversations. My own view is we'll probably be in a good position to taper at the end of this year or early next. Here's the reaction to that inflation number and investors uh, taking the CPI number and just trying to debate what to do with it. Uh, curiously enough, uh, one area of the market where all along investors have had worries about, namely with uh, any uh, inflation triggering a, a spike in interest rates. It's been technology that investors had concentrated some of their early concerns around. But that sector of the market was actually one of the more resilient parts of the market yesterday. In fact, there was other areas around this reflation trade, also potentially a little bit of caution on the eve of earnings season that just crept into the markets, taking us off the records that we had. That said, we did have a fresh all-time record in the trading session for the S&P 500 and also for the Nasdaq. It was just on the finish that we peeled away from these high ranges. But just a modest move south, a third of a percent off uh, most of these major markets. And you can see the big tech names and how it played out across the trade uh, for the Nasdaq as uh, we take a look at some of those big names. I mean, some of these uh, were still supported, as you can see. Apple stock, for instance, uh, one of the big ones out there, eight tenths of a percent higher even stronger for Microsoft, 1.3%. Alphabet uh, to round out uh, some of the big names, uh, about a third of a percent higher. It was just patches of red really around some of those social media names, trading lower, also the likes of Amazon and Tesla. U.S. banks are a huge focus there. Given the start of earnings season, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs kicking it off. And uh, we had some bumper numbers coming through, again, around the release of provisions. And we'd flagged this up yesterday that uh, some of the profits could be a little bit flattered by the amount of money parked to the sidelines by some of the banks just in case they needed it during the pandemic. Some of that to cash now being released. And that's a positive in the numbers, not to mention all the huge M&A activity that's been a very supportive backdrop for the major investment banks. But uh, there were other features that we also pointed out to watch out for yesterday, and that was the uh, sidelines activity on markets in the last quarter, the lack of volatility, which impacted the trading incomes and also the loan portfolio. But uh, the market was a little bit cautious around the banks uh, as a result uh, on the uh, eve of earnings, as you can see, as earnings were just uh, rolled out later on. Treasuries, uh, this is the impact for the market around the inflation numbers. We did see a little bit of a lift off yesterday on the numbers, but then we're just pulling back a little bit morning session. So we're back below the 1.4 level on that U.S. 10-year yield. And a quick look at the Asian markets. Here's how we're setting up across the trade. You can see it is a weaker picture, the Chinese market in particular, perhaps a little bit of caution before some GDP numbers out tomorrow, that market trading weaker patch of green for Australia at this stage. But Steve, the inflation numbers, uh, interested in your interpretation, because to me, it still looked like the numbers were a little bit transitory. Yeah, well, 
I, I don't know anymore, Karen. All I can say is it's become one of those amazing binary arguments where you either believe there are some deep-rooted inflationary issues in the US economy and perhaps the global economy, or you believe it's transitory. And, and it seems like one of those arguments where, like cryptocurrencies or gold, you sit very firmly on one side uh, of the ledger or the other. I mean, a lot of these factors, I mean, you know, we've mentioned some of them already, kind of um, used cars up 10.5%, rental of said vehicles up 5.2%, lodging up 7%. But but are these issues transitory or are they permanently entrenched? And, and I think a lot of it depends on, on attitudes going forward, because as, as, as Ian Re uh, Shepherdson uh, has been writing at Pantheon as well, inflation spikes can become a spiral if expectations and wages surge. Now, you and I have talked a lot about wages with Jeff and our guests uh, over the months and years as well. And if it starts becoming entrenched, if people start expecting higher pay deals as well, uh, then you could have, as Ian was pointing out in his copy, uh, the spiral going on there. Um, there are ramifications from what we're seeing now, though, regardless of, of whether you think it's transitory or, or, or actually there's something more permanent going on. And, and we've seen it, one, in the 30-year auction as well, which was a $24 billion auction, say, which was weakish, i.e. if you think there are inflationary pressures coming up forward, do you want to pick up a relatively and historically low 30-year paper coupon or yield on that paper as well when you if you think that inflation is going to be more deeply entrenched and of course you're getting a vast amount of supply coming onto the market because of the huge spending programs you're getting uh, and on those spending programs this is the point as well you're getting this becoming a political issue now and of course the midterms not so far away you're always in an electoral cycle in the US and the Republicans are, are going to give uh, Mr. Powell a very tough time over the next couple of days perhaps in, in the Q&A to the testimony as well. For instance, you've got Elisa Stefanik, a congresswoman from New York State, saying, look, inflation is taxation. Plus, you've got Mitch McConnell, and I'm quoting his quote from the Financial Times, families are feeling it everywhere, from the supermarket to the gas pump, to the housing, to the used car lot and beyond as well. And this is the point. He says, all thanks in large part to the Democrats' half-baked spending spree from the springtime. So Mitch McConnell and the Republicans very much saying, this isn't so much about what the central bank is doing. This is about what's happening on a fiscal basis as well. So uh, on the bond markets, it has ramifications. On the political agenda and timescale, it has ramifications as well, whether you believe it's transitory or whether you believe it's more permanent as well. Uh, so it, regardless, of what the Fed and the White House thinks, this is becoming a huge issue across America. A couple of points here. Transitory. How long is transitory? And I think that's what the markets had to deal with. The Fed was trying to tackle that, talking about even if it lasts for a few months, then it can still be transitory pricing pressures. And I think there are a lot of explanations as we dig into those various points. I mean, airfares, we even know that some of the major airlines in the United States have cut back on the amount of capacity that they have, which is uh, driving up prices in addition to all the extra paint up demand by people who are wanting to, to go and visit places, see family and friends that they've not visited for many, many months. So we can understand that story. The question is when the money is spent, is there more of it around the corner for people to embark upon the same journey to see the same family and friends to go on more vacations? When it comes to the used car and the rental car market, I mean, and you can see it. I, I was trying to hire a rental car the other day. You can see that the price is much higher than the same time a year ago. These car rental companies have not got the same fleet that they had prior to the pandemic. They've not been able to add more cars and they can't meet the extra demand at this stage. So some of this does feel very much transitory. The question is whether it remains. And, and I do wonder about that. The wage pressure we're seeing, 
a lot of it seems to be in a, a lot of lower income positions. Uh, for instance, there was a stat that it was actually high school educated workers. That's where you've seen the wage growth, which is a very unusual part of the market. And we've been calling for more of the um, profits from big industries and for, from sectors to be spread across various demographics in the labour market. I think we're starting to see that now because you've got populations who simply do not want to return to jobs because of the COVID risk and you know encouraging them back in is causing this wage spike. But what does the wage spike actually do? Because we talk about this a lot. Is it just going to allow more debt to be t- paid down? It doesn't really feel as though that's going to be an inflationary pressure if uh, people are going to be slightly better off in terms of their debt positions, Steve. Karen, I'm going to beg to differ on, on, on a couple of points. I mean, again, I don't know whether rental car prices are going to stay high or not as well. But I think there is a lot happening across the employment spectrum as well. And, and again, just to bring back something that you brought up a couple of days ago, uh, and that was the salaries of junior bankers and Goldman's were fretting uh, whether they were going to join the uh, the huge inflationary increase in junior banker salaries that some of their rivals have done on Wall Street on both sides of the Atlantic. That's one piece of evidence. The second is junior lawyer salaries here in the United Kingdom, would you believe that starting salaries uh, are, are, are topping now over £100,000, a report out today as well. Uh, and across, I mean, w- w- how do we, we judge logistics drivers? Now, of course, at one end, they are perhaps uh, at the lower end of the pay scale, but, but long haul HGV drivers earn a lot of money. And there is a huge crisis in getting hold of these now across the UK, uh, across Europe. And, and I don't know, but I'm imagining there's similar pressures in the United States as well. But, but I found another piece of evidence, which I think is very interesting about employment trends as well. And, and that was coming from the insolvency service as well. Uh, this is a, a quite a staggering then. Admittedly, it's the UK rather than the US, but I want to make the point. Employers are now planning the lowest number of job cuts in over six years. Now, that takes out the cycle in over six years. Apparently, only 15,600 insolvencies are are planned, whereas last June, the figure was 10 times that as well. So it seems from a lot of these, again, a lot of it's anecdotal, but a lot of it's actually real factual evidence that that, that employers are very, very worried about retaining their employees uh, and and actually don't want to let them go because they are seeing this economic expansion. So they're very, very worried. So I I think this is absolutely fascinating. Again, I'm kind of I, I, I thought things looked like it was more than just the base effects. I thought it was more on transitory. But, you know, there's so many people from a policy point of view coming on and telling us it is transitory. I'm just going to sit here and just, like, assess the evidence from everybody and then we'll just see how this pans out. But as you quite rightly say, Karen, how long is transitory? Is it a year, two years? And if it's two years, that, again, goes back to my previous point, which brings into the focus the U.S. electoral cycle. Right, we have plenty more coming up on this show, including ARK Invest Kathy Wood. Uh, she has said deflation, well, that's interesting, deflation will likely become a major force in markets next year. Wow. Uh, well, she's going to join our US colleagues at 2200 CET. Plus, on this side of the pond, we're going to discuss inflation with the Bank of England Deputy Governor for Financial Stability, John Cunliffe. Don't miss that exclusive interview at 1200 Central European time. Plus on bank earnings, well, we haven't discussed it too much yet, but coming up on the show, JP Morgan kicks off the earnings season with a blockbuster profit jump, but warns of lending headwinds. Uh, More on that after the break. Plus, Karen. And if you want to uh, dive into that US inflation data and uh, dissect what it could mean for Fed policy, don't forget to check out the Squawk Box podcast. 
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back to my favorite business show. Um, Mr. Orsell, he's been in place, what now, two or three months as well over at Unicredit. And there's all kinds of streamlining of top management going on as well. Uh, axing co-heads of ma main functions, slashing the number of internal committees. So really trying a top-down approach over at Unicredit um, to mold it uh, into the way that uh, Mr. Orsell would like it to be as well. So he's told La Stampa today, apparently, that Unicredit... Uh, is in talks with Italy's Treasury for new conditions for a potential deal with Banca MPS. Um, has told his managers, though, that M&A is not a priority uh, and is focused on the banks, as I just mentioned, actually, the internal um, reorganisation. There, there isn't a manager out there who wouldn't want to see less internal committees, even at CNBC. Uh, apparently, he's, he's cut it down to 15 or 20 of these, uh, down from 44, and replace an executive committee well, the executive committee apparently had 27 managers. Uh, can you imagine that for a meeting? Everyone gets their say. It's down to 15 now anyway. So a lot going on uh, at the banks on this side of the Atlantic. And of course, as Karen was saying in the headlines, on the other side of the Atlantic, let's go into it. JP Morgan has posted uh, a mere 155% surge in second quarter earnings. Uh, beat estimates as a multi-billion dollar release of lost loan provisions helped offset a decline in trading revenues. But America's largest bank by assets warned of a slowdown in lending for the rest of 2021 due to low rates uh, and the impact of recent stimulus measures. Goldman Sachs has reported a 16% rise in second quarter revenue ahead of estimates thanks to strong performance at the lender's key asset management business. Investment banking fees are also jumped amid an uptick in merger and acquisition activity. However, easing volatility and increased consumer confidence led to a decline at the company's markets unit. Well, speaking to CNBC, the CEO, David Solomon, outlined how the recovery has helped boost valuations. I think that the market is looking at the robust economic recovery we're having, and it's pulling forward some of that recovery. Uh, we'll that, watch is that. It, is it a bit richly valued, the market at the moment? You know, richly valued. It depends on where the economic recovery goes mm -hmm. from here. Uh, obviously, and you guys are reporting on it, earnings momentum is quite strong. Uh, and I think the market is catching up with that strong economic recovery. The big question will be, what do we see in 2022 and 2023? And how will the market rebalance to that? Mm -hmm. You know, at the, um, at the moment, uh, you know, the market's telling you that growth is very, very robust. Neil Veitch joins us now, Global and UK Investment Director at SVM. Neil, a fascinating report to digest from both Goldman's and JP Morgan. One of the strong features, the investment bank doing the heavy lifting this time round on the back of all of those IPOs and M&A deals that we've been watching. At the expense, though, the trading portfolio where we've seen markets start to fade in the quarter. What did you make of the, the extent of the beat that we saw from some of these big banks? I think... 
results were, were strong. There's no um, disputing that. Um, certainly in a historical rec- context, re- returns are very impressive. But as we know, the market is a discounting mechanism. It's what have you done for me, me lately? And in that context, returns and results were very much in line with expectations. As you say, investment banking activity, very strong and likely to remain so. Trading activity against a difficult comp from um, the first quarter and, more importantly, uh, the pandemic last year uh, was more, more, more challenging. But overall, the results themselves do very little to t- uh, provide any clarity over the durability of those returns. Neil, there's all sorts of question marks as you talk about that durability. I mean, we've got uh, more Fed action potentially later this year, whether that brings more market volatility back into the equation, uh, reinforcing uh, the the trading income that we witnessed during some of those pandemic trends. Perhaps that's something to watch out for. The other point here is that there are all sorts of concerns around the M&A outlook uh, when we've got the United States going after antitrust cases, China, where there's more tech regulation that may be impacting some of the listings. How do you look at the durability of the earnings in a couple of these key areas for the banks? I think it's very difficult to, to gauge, and that's what the market is grappling with at this particular particular juncture. I think m and activity will remain strong over the second half and into early next year. Um, the factors that you reference uh, have to be brought into consideration, but overall, I think what drives m and activity is the strength of the economic outlook, as, as the, the Goldman CEO referred to in your earlier segment. And that looks fairly robust to us. Morning, Neil. Um, look, can we put to bed at long last now the importance of NIMS and higher interest rates as well? Because it seems to me these banks are absolutely making hay, regardless of uh, what's going on with the underlying interest rates as well. Uh, there is this mantra that NIMS and higher interest rates go in tandem as well. Well, are these banks proving otherwise? Um. I think yes, yes, and no. I mean, as as you say, Steve, um, very impressive uh, results. Um, investment banking, wealth management, strong, and uh, certainly in wealth management's case, fairly fairly resilient. And I think there's a good argument to say that in an economic context, NIM is losing some of its importance now. Unfortunately, markets are driven by as much by psychology as they are fundamentals and quite often it is perception uh, as opposed to reality that drives share prices and I still think that if we see a a pickup in inflation expectations a steepening of that yield curve then the market will adopt a sort of Pavlovian response and bank share prices will outperform in that environment even if ultimately uh, NIM is not as important as it has been historically or certainly NIM may not be as sensitive to a rising interest rate environment as it has been. Yeah. Uh, and just one on the valuations. I mean, we've been alluding to it as well. But I mean, you cannot find uh, a top line US bank trading less than one on a price to book pretty much. If there is, then they've got a problem. I mean, they are trading substantially over one in many cases as well. I mean, I'm just looking at Goldman Sachs here now. Uh, and yeah, just huge, huge levels on all of these companies on price to book. 1.37 going forward on Goldman's as well. JP's a, a bit higher than that. Uh, in Europe, you can't find one above one barely as well. Um, no. Is this something structural, this difference? And is it going to last pretty much for the rest of my career in the city, which I hope will be a long while? <laughs> I can't comment on the length of your career in the city, Steve. Um, but I think there's, there's good reason to believe that that valuation um, differential will will, will persist. Um, it's been around as, as long as I've been in markets, perhaps not to the same degree as we're seeing we're seeing now. But that valuation differential has been in place. 
um, and it reflects the higher returns profile of the US banks relative to the to the European. And while that may change at the margin, I'm not sure we're going to see enough change to warrant those multiples uh, moving closer closer together. And I caught your earlier segment uh, with regards to, to Unicreditical potentially talking about M&A activity uh, in, in Italy. I mean, Europe is, is, is not only overbanked and therefore less efficient uh, from a sort of gross productivity basis, um, but also has arguably tougher regulation than the, than the US. The US banks have been freed from a lot of the regulatory pressures and that has enabled them to take market share globally. And you're seeing that in their returns returns profile. Um, so I think there's a good reason to believe that the, the valuation differential between the two will persist. Um, Neil, is the, is the war over for good? You, 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 you hark from a part of the world which, which had its own global super banker at one stage and, and Fred the Shred uh, and when RBS yeah. were, were conquering all kinds of, uh, uh, of jurisdictions. But uh, unfortunately, RBS fell by the, the wayside. Deutsche fell by the wayside in its global aspirations. Credit Suisse fell yeah. in its global aspirations as well. Can Europe still produce an investment bank of the same quality as the United States? I think the, the honest answer has to be that it can't. I mean, I think, again, I began, began my career in the, in, in, in the, in the mid-90s. I can remember Credit Suisse buying First Boston uh, way back way back then. And it's been a um, feature of, of markets over the last 20 to 30 years that the European banks have continuously attempted to get into the investment banking top tier and have consistently failed. And it's very difficult to see what would what would change that? I think you'd have to see some sort of regulatory environment that would was designed um, in a European context to favour one large uh, European investment banking champion. And I just don't think that's politically um, doable, uh, given the current structure of, of European uh, policy decision making. So I think, yes, I think the US bank's hedging money will continue. Neil, I want to circle back to the U.S. consumer because the numbers from the banks yesterday gave us a glimpse that the consumer is in good health. And, and that was the, the commentary from Jamie Dimon, too, about the, the state mm-hmm. of the balance sheet for consumers. The money that we saw yeah. returned to investors was money that had been locked up for provisions just in case credit card loans turned yeah. sour or you saw mortgages uh, enter some form of stress that simply just didn't happen. So as we talk about the consumer, if they're in such good shape, what is the next behaviour? Do they load up? on bigger mortgages? Do they spend up more on their credit cards? And what do the US banks do for the next phase from here? Um, I think, I mean, as you, as you alluded to, there's a number of different factors at, at play. Consumer balance sheets are, are very strong. We don't pers- believe there'll be any sort of scarring as a consequence of the, of the pandemic. And therefore, the US consumer will uh, spend some of that excess, excess saving. Um, we're already seeing U.S. Um, house prices. I think last quarter they were up or in June, almost 14% year on year, and a similar trend in the, in, in the U.K. Um, so house prices are very strong. Now that's partly a structural issue with a lack of supply meeting very strong uh, demand, but it does also demonstrate that the consumer feels fairly confident about about life. Um, but we've seen that already, and, and banks aren't really seeing their loan books. Grow. I think it will be just more of the same, fairly anemic uh, loan growth for, for the banks, offset by strong um, investment banking a- a- activity. I think the M&A environment will remain strong. And then the wild card is, is trading activity. Um, as you mentioned, 
earlier, Karen, uh, the potential for the Fed to become more aggressive in the second half of the year might inject some volatility into markets and the, the banks will hope they can capture that in their trading activities. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.